You're listening to another impactful episode of the Combinate Podcast, the show where we drive for quality in everything, because quality is everything. I'm your host, Subi Sade. I've been working on medical devices, pharmaceuticals, and combination products for the last 10 years, and my goal is to understand. Each week, I sit down with leaders to understand and bring together medtech and biotech in order to examine the roadblocks in development and access we face and bring to light concepts and tools from our industry and others to help address those. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Combinate Podcast. I'm your host, Subi Sade. Back for more, we have Darshan Kulkarni. Um, Darshan, uh, if you know, came onto the show a couple months back, and we talked about promotional compliance. I had a bunch of questions. We got into free speech. Um, we talked about the idea that products have to be safe and effective. That's what that's what's in the law, and how you know that translates to a to a promotional speech or commercial speech um, requirement, essentially, of being truthful and not misleading. Uh, now we're here to talk about non-promotional speech, a little bit about Darshan's background. Uh, he's a pharmacist and attorney, law professor. Welcome, Darshan. Thank you for having me again, Sylvie. I, I, I thought your listeners would either really be excited at this or they're turning off their speakers as we speak. Yeah. So. So I'm, I'm the only listener that matters. I'm excited about it. <laughs> Good. Glad to hear it. Yeah. Uh, thank you for having me on. This should be a really fun conversation. Awesome. So we, we talked about what you can, what you know, essentially the the off-label uh, promotion, right? Yeah. And then, um, you know, in that conversation, you, you could almost see me have a giant paradigm shift uh, <laughs> <laughs> while we were talking, but, uh, you know, you know, the, the idea that you posited in, in the last episode, and it's not really an idea as much as it is what, what the state of affairs is, is that there's um, there's stipulations about what you can and can't do from a um, uh, promotion point of view. But as far as it as far as it goes, you know, you talked about you being a pharmacist and, and what the expectations are there. But you also talked about off-label use and that there really isn't as many um restrictions because they have the ability to use products as tools and i mean you talked about um what is it called malpractice um but no real no real controls pre-use right and so um can you can you maybe just describe a little bit high level the difference between promotional and non-promotional so so maybe we can start a little bit uh early on and and do a um, for those people who are not attorneys, and I'm guessing that you don't have too many attorneys going. It's all of, attorneys. It's, it's all attorneys. Okay, so great. I, I can have a First Amendment discussion. Yeah. Um, but let, let's start from the beginning. The, the way the First Amendment, that First Amendment law works is um, there are at least two, if not more, levels of scrutiny. So the, the government can only restrict uh, speech, uh, if if it falls in, de depending on the level of scrutiny that speech gets, 
Um, and, and there's a major court case from the 80s that, that talks about this. But essentially, it comes down to there's there's one level of speech, for example, political speech and scientific discussion that's given the greatest amount of protection. And the idea is that this stuff is too important for the government to choose what can be said and what, what cannot be said. It's not the government's job to tell people what to say. That That's the first level. It's called strict scrutiny. The idea is um, the government must must be controlled and must be limited in how much they can regulate that type of speech, if at all. So, for example, you don't want the current sitting president telling the next president that he can't advertise or she can't advertise for her um, campaign. You just don't want that. That's that's not a healthy democracy. In the same way, you don't want the government saying this is um th- this is the type of science we will allow you to discuss speech needs to be controlled in those cases uh, speech needs to be free flowing in those cases um there's a second level of uh, of speech a second layer of level of scrutiny if you will uh, for commercial speech which is um if you're using the, the the speech to advertise a product um you will you will get a different level of scrutiny it's known as intermediate scrutiny and and that is um, the the level of the standard at which, for example, we're looking at drug ads, and the government has a little bit more leeway in those cases. Um, the the and then there is um, just lies um, and and things like um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? And there's actually a lowest level of scrutiny. I can't really remember more about it because I just don't get into that that area too much, but. Um, but but there's also this this idea of um, lies like uh, shouting fire in a crowded theater. You you can't do that. There are limits to even your free speech. Um, so so those are sort of the uh, big issues, which is strict scrutiny and intermediate scrutiny. We had a whole conversation last time about intermediate scrutiny. Strict scrutiny is um, is is a question that that courts have. Um, have sort of been dealing with since the 1980s. The, the reason this becomes important is in the um, in the late 2000, well, in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, well, let's, let's actually start earlier. In the 1970s, there was a group within pharma called Medical Affairs, and it, it started, started to emerge. And at that it came time- up through, I think it came up through Upjohn, right? It did, it yeah. did. Um, I think you got that from the article I'm writing, actually, didn't yeah. you? <laughs> but yeah. Just so uh, you know, I read it. <laughs> I know you did. I know you did. Uh, I, just just for those people who are listening, at, I'm in the middle of writing a 42-page article, which I think we brought it down to like 27 pages already, on just this issue of what are the limits of free speech in the context of uh, talking about pharmaceuticals. Um, but, but the idea, yeah, it came from the 1970s, was up, John. And they were really... At that point, medical affairs were seen as uh, super experts, and they they said instead of sending out sales reps who may not have the um, scientific qualifications, let's let's put out actual experts like PhDs and MDs and PharmDs. Uh, I don't think they had PharmDs at that point. I could be wrong, but um, let's put those people out, and they can talk about the drug. Um, cut to the 1990s, you start having direct to consumer advertising. And the FDA starts getting a little concerned and, and the FDA starts saying, we're now concerned about people talking about drugs um, 
And, and, and again, like I said, in the 1980s, you had um, the, these court cases that talked about strict scrutiny. Um, and and you, you got to a space where scientific discussion does have its limits. Um, so the FDA tried to evaluate and say, we probably need to start controlling this because this can go awry very, very quickly. We might land up in a scenario where pharma companies, uh, and I, when I say pharma, I mean medical device companies as well. I'm sort of including them together, biopharma companies as well. Um, but the FDA took the position that we're concerned that you're going to have these medical affairs people who are supposed to be scientists start promoting the product. And um, that that's usually problematic because who's going to come talk to... Uh, Who's going to go get a FDA approval if someone can talk about, about the off-label use of a drug? So you you made a comment earlier in your introduction, Sobi, where you talked a little bit about um, off-label use. Just to be very, very clear, off-label use is completely legal. There's nothing that stops, including the FDA. The FDA has no jurisdiction over off-label use. Well, very, very limited uh, jurisdiction over off-label use. I'm sorry, I'm thinking more like REMS products kinds of things, kinds of things. But for the most part, FDA has very, very limited jurisdiction over off-label use. However, talking about those off-label uses in a promotional context, the FDA generally has exerted control over it. In the nineteen late 1990s, early um, early 2000s, the FDA went after medical affairs and they they basically went to the courts and they said, um, we are concerned about um, pharmaceutical companies talking about the off-label uses of drugs, even if it's done in the context of medical affairs, because um, these guys are effectively sales reps, was the position that the FDA took. And who's going to come out and... Um, and, and promote the, and this is the Washington Legal Foundation case that I'm thinking of for those people who are sort of tracking this. Um, who's going to come and get an FDA approval if anyone can promote, uh, who can, if anyone can talk about off-label use of the drug? Um, the, the courts generally took that at that point and said, is what these medical affairs people saying, is that um, false or misleading? Is, is is what they're saying a lie. And um, generally speaking, what you got was the FDA said, no, it's not a lie. We just don't think, it, we think that it would upend um, the Food, Drugs, and Cosmetics Act, which has existed for over 70 years. And that's usually problematic. Um, still with me, Sylvia, or did I bore the, bore the hell out of you? No, I'm with you. Okay, cool. Um, so, so you've got now a situation where you've got the Food, Drugs, and Cosmetics Act, and you've got updating First Amendment law. And the course at that point basically took the position, and, and I think I'm quoting from the uh, from the Washington Legal Foundation case, but the court said, uh, so what makes you FDA so qualified to decide what is, uh, well, so, so okay, I should, I, should, I should add that. Um, what happened was then the court said, how do you decide whether they can talk about it or not. And they said, we look at we look at the studies, we, we look at you know the two double-blinded placebo-controlled trials, we evaluate if that's okay, and then we'll we'll let a company talk about a specific product or not. And that's how, how things should be. Um, the court took two positions in that case. Number one, they said, just because something's been one way for 70 years doesn't mean it has to continue to be that way. Um, and then they also took the position that um, 
the the idea that the FDA should be the sole determiner of truth is unacceptable. Um, so so what's what's interesting that you said is that during during that time, it was basically, you know, how do you how do you uphold the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act through the FDNC? Correct. Um, but also, how do you maintain free speech? Correct. Uh, I guess. How, how do you do that? Well, so so essentially, the standard has been you can talk. So in the 2000s, uh, the FDA lost the case. And they decided not to appeal it. And instead, they've sort of created this um, sort of unspoken standard, which is um, your uh, companies can talk about things as long as it is uh, scientific discussion. So it's not promotional speech, which is where you get that big barrier, that Chinese wall between commercial and medical affairs. So if it's for education, if it's for talking about the scientific discussion, scientist to scientist, then FDA has very limited jurisdiction. So, I mean, is it does it just come up come down to reporting lines and qualifications of you know who's doing the speech, or how do you reconcile that? So that's being fought as we speak. No one really knows. So for the most part, it comes down to quote-unquote, speaker. The, the courts don't look favorably on time, manner, or speaker-based restrictions. So, What does courts, that mean? Which means that courts are not happy when you say, you as a person, you as a company can't talk about it, but someone else can. Or you can't talk about it right now. You can talk about it later on because we choose that that's how you should do it. Uh, or you can't talk about it this way, but you can talk about it that way. You, Especially in the context of um, of first of, of sort of strict scrutiny type discussions, scientific discussions, the, the courts have generally frowned upon those limitations. There are even those limitations that carry over into promotional speech, but they're, they're managed slightly differently. But in the context of non-promotional speech, the courts have basically said, who are you FDA to decide? Who made you the grand arbiter of truth? And as long as it meets the standard of truth and not misleading, you you don't get to tell people what they can say and not say. So as long as right now you keep that that barrier between commercial and uh, non-promotional or commercial and medical affairs, things you're you're in a place where um, you can talk about a lot of things as a medical affairs person. However, the moment you go from being medical affairs to start promoting things, well, you've now switched from being a being a educator to being in commercial. So your title doesn't matter. It's what you do that matters. So um there there were several corporate integrity agreements uh in the in the 2010s where companies paid multi-billion dollar fines because uh you had people in medical affairs. What is um, a, sorry, what is a corporate integrity agreement? A corporate integrity agreement is a settlement uh, with, well, so there's a settlement agreement and that uh, that's settlement. So let's, let's start from the beginning. Um, what you might land up with is a scenario where a pharma company gets uh, gets called out by the Department of Justice and the Department of Justice says, we have these issues with your product. Uh, you, we think that you're promoting your product off label. And um, this, this is what happened in like the early, late 2000s, early 2010s. And um, we think you're promoting the product off-label. Okay, um, 
So what does that mean? The idea is that if you promote the product off-label, you're then promoting the use of the product and causing CMS. So not the FDA, but CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, causing them to pay out money that they shouldn't be paying out. So it's not that the use was illegal because no one's controlling off-label use. You promoting it was illegal. So that's that's a violation of the False Claims Act and could have had some anti-kickback concerns, et cetera. So that's the Department of Justice suing pharma companies. So as part of the settlement, um, so, so a violation of the False Claims Act uh, can be, I think it's, I, I forget the numbers, but it's three times each, uh, the value of the transaction plus I think it's $15,000 um, per transaction. When you're talking about millions of transactions um, for these drug companies, those numbers add up very quickly. So you were talking on multi-billion dollar fines um, for a lot of different drug companies. Um, so you, you had multiple companies where you had pharmaceutical medical affairs people who were judged based on the amount of sales in their territory. So if the sales in that territory went up, the, the, uh, the bonuses for the medical affairs people went up. And that would be hugely problematic because you're not a, because uh, then you're incentivized to sell. Even though your role is education, you're not incentivized to sell. Mm. And, and that so, would be problematic. And so that, that blurs the line between the commercial and, and exactly. scientific. Okay. So in terms of context of discussion, um, you know, you said that, was it time, manner, place um, restrictions? Uh Time, manner, uh, speaker. Time, manner, uh, speaker. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how, how does one reconcile between a scientific, you know, sort of discussion versus a sales? Is it, it I mean, is it based on what your role is? Because, I mean, it, it sounds like those folks were part of medical affairs. I'm just trying to understand. Uh, so, so the, so the, in general, the, the position has been that you can't limit those things, uh, in general, but the, like I just told you, that Washington Legal Foundation case has created this. Uh, this not, it's not it's not a settlement, but sort of a quiet truce. That's the word I'm looking for. Truce, where companies uh, decided that we will maintain non-promotional speech in um, and and sort of control it so that it's not promotional. And as a result of that, um, we we don't have to. We won't go after the FDA for the time manner speech restriction limitation that they may be creating. That's been changing in the 2010s, by the way. So there there was the Alfred Coronia case. There was the, uh, I'm blanking on some of the names right now, but there, there were a series of court cases, the Coronia case being one of them, um, where those those situations got challenged. So, um, so the, the short version, long and short of this, is that... Uh, the, F the FDA has taken the position that we we are not we're not going to go after people as long as you're engaged in scientific discussion, um, but you need to demonstrate that you are. The, uh, and when you don't, the DOJ gets involved and they will say we're going after you, pharma company, and then you 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 settle with the DOJ because you're otherwise facing these multi-billion-dollar fines. And as part of that settlement, you may agree to what's called a corporate integrity agreement. That was the question you actually asked earlier. And a corporate integrity integrity agreement basically says we're going to take steps to make sure that we have processes in place that prevent the mistakes that you went after us for. 
So one is by agreeing to a list of conditions in that corporate integrity agreement. One of those conditions may be we're going to have what's called a IRO or a uh, institutional review board. And um, so that's like an IRB in clinical trials, but for your whole company. Um, and uh, in, in those specific situations, you'll have, um, far, you'll, you'll basically have pharma companies agree to things like um, we, we won't promote, we, we won't promote off-label or um, medical affairs will be kept separate from um, commercial and here are the steps we will take. And Th this IRO will make sure we do all of those things. Is that is that helpful? Does that contextualize? Yeah, yeah, it answers the question. So, I mean, how do how do physicians interact with medical affairs? So, right now, the way physicians interact with medical affairs is uh, they might fill out what's called a MRF, a medical information request form, and they'll say, um, "I want to talk to talk to someone in medical affairs." So, the first question is, "Is this something that you need to talk to medical affairs?" Um, and can, is it something that's on label that the sales rep can answer? If not, they may want to talk to the uh, talk to medical affairs because they feel that this person is a fellow scientist, because they may feel like this person can bring an expertise that someone else cannot, or they may feel that this person is not promoting uh, because that's not their role. Um, my experience talking to healthcare uh, practitioners, being a healthcare practitioner, is um, it tends to be a combination of all of those. I've I've, uh, I've had. Physicians, uh, pharmacists tell me that they feel like they're being sold to by salespeople, um, but they don't feel the same way around medical affairs, uh, but they don't necessarily feel that it's not a commercial role, even though it's intended to be a non-commercial role. Um, so that's just a perspective issue. And, mm -hmm. and I think pharma needs to do a better job trying to address that. Okay. So um, so the, the physician requests a discussion with medical affairs? Correct. Typically? Correct. And then, um, so in, in the last discussion we had, you you mentioned the Sunshine Act and um, yeah. open payments, I think. And yep. so I, I started looking into that. Yeah. And I mean, they they set a pretty tight, I mean, my, my perception, and I don't know about any, I don't know about this at all, but I think $10 is the perception of value. It's it's $10 transfer of value, oh, uh, $10 per transaction or $100 per year. I don't know if it's adjusted for inflation. I think it is. But when it started, it was $10 per transaction and $100 per year. In the and, and and that includes uh, journal articles and things like that? Yep. It includes journal articles. It includes anything like that. So the idea being that if you're sharing that um, with a um, physician, you need to be very careful as to um, as to how the physician is going to take it. So you, you've got situations where the physician says, I want to talk to, to a medical affairs person, um, in those specific situations, you'll the medical affairs person will answer the question. They're required often to support their answer. So that may be based on giving the journal articles that were referenced. Um, the physician may say, I don't want the journal article, but the pharma company is often required to provide that. And that may be considered to be a transfer of value. So you, you might land up in a scenario where the pharma company gives something to the physician that they don't want. And as a result of it, they show up on the Sunshine Act website as receiving, receiving transfers of value. Um, and that becomes problematic from a relationship standpoint because the pharma companies now land up in a scenario where um, the, the same doctors that they were trying to impress and sort of demonstrate value to now see them as giving them things that they didn't necessarily want. So again, full disclosure, I actually have a solution coming out um, that addresses exactly this problem. Um, the other problem you, you face is in, in the context of sharing information 
you don't actually know you, you, the, the average journal article costs about 30 or 40 bucks. Um, and, and what you're struggling with is a scenario where um, these, these journal articles, um, you, you're, you're giving them away to people who may not necessarily, necessarily want them. And you don't know if anyone's even opening up that article. So if you send it via a, um, a physical sort of fax or physical copy, you literally give it and may, it may just get tossed in the trash as soon as you leave the room. And that's hugely problematic because you're spending millions of dollars on collecting these articles. Also, you don't actually know whether these articles are, uh, are, are being, um, like which articles actually matter because you've got a bunch of these articles that you're using. You don't know which ones are actually causing any difference at all uh, in terms of education, in terms of learning, in the context of medical affairs or in the, in the context of sales for those people who are sharing non-label stuff. So again, those are all concerns and considerations when you're medical affairs, because you want to be effective in, in teaching someone. And if you find out that there's an article from the New England Journal of Medicine that makes a difference, great. But from Shamu's uh, news, news article, well, maybe they don't care about that one. And, and maybe you should stop buying printed out copies of that. So it's important that as a medical affairs person, you're sharing the information that matters with the people who want to hear it. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I saw something when I was looking at the open payments, because there's a, I mean, it, there's some transparency around, you know, amounts and, um, yeah. categorization. Um, I, I thought it was interesting that there's a distinction between general and research. Yeah. What, what does that mean? So again, each company has to decide that there are some definitions associated with that, but what you, what the government basically did, and and companies made it made a point to sort of lobby for this, is that don't just go. We gave money to, to doctors because that's not really fair. The the it depends on what we gave to the doctors. So if I paid you to do research, at least say say that I gave you the money to do research. On the other hand, if I paid you for journal articles, say that I gave you journal articles. If I gave you food, then say I gave you food. If it doesn't fit into any of those categories, maybe it goes into general. So those definitions are often something that you that there are general sort of outlines for, but then you can also say, here's how we are defining general. So we're classifying, I'm making this up, but a, um, I don't know, the cost of flying to a conference to be general and not clinical research or promotional. And here's the reason why. Um, but you get to explain some of that stuff and the assumptions. Mm. Uh, why do you think that this is so important? Because you you went from um, pharmacy to law, and now you're teaching and writing and focusing on this almost full time, right? Yeah, I it's it's a huge component of what I do. I, I I'm a huge believer in the First Amendment to start off with, and I think uh, I'm a sixth generation pharmacist. So for me, the impact on patients is is really really important. So the idea that the people with the most knowledge of some about something, i.e., the pharmaceutical company, are the ones who are prevented from sharing that information. Seems weird, um, and it was it became something I, I started learning about, started focusing about. I'm fascinated by um, education. Like I said, I I, I teach, uh, so so it's something that I genuinely care about. But I'm also fascinated by the idea of uh, talking to people and seeing what makes them tick. So. Again, First Amendment became a really inter interesting question for me. That's why I became a lawyer, because persuasion is a really interesting thing to me. And that comes from trust. That comes from sharing. That comes from transparency. That's why all these things came together. And that's why I kind of like this has been the area I focused on. Mm. Um, where do you see it going? 
Uh, I, I saw it going in a very different way compared to a conversation I had literally yesterday. And I'll put that out on my podcast in a, in a few days. Um, just just to shout shout out to myself, but I have my own Wait, podcast that, that's called Darshan is um, a scenario where first the, the FDA is going to be controlled and the FDA is going to have more leashes put on it because they are exceeding their their limits. And we're seeing that in many, many different places. Uh, for example, they're they're using draft guidances to control how um, people should behave when draft guidances, when guidances themselves are uh, not even official acts of the, of the government. So they aren't even considered to be final acts. So uh, their uh, guidances have a very limited role and the FDA uses it far more than, than is probably appropriate. Um, the, the second part of it is, um, sorry, I'm trying to remember. remember uh, Where do you see it going? Uh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> thank you for the question. Uh, so I, I, I originally saw it going that, that the FDA would be controlled and limited. However, um, I, the reason I mentioned my podcast is because I interviewed um, a Harvard First Amendment lawyer yesterday. And uh, she kind of blew my mind about how she sees this space evolving. And her position is that there are, there are currently some cases in front of the Supreme Court where they're talking about whether Facebook and, um, and I don't know, Twitter, Twitter. Should, be, should be monitoring uh, the type of content that goes out. And if the Supreme Court says yes, if you can tell Facebook and, and Twitter to monitor, why can't you tell Pfizer to monitor? And that got into a whole discussion about what are the implications of giving the, the federal government that much power or the state governments that much power. And that could completely change how much bandwidth the FDA has in regulating speech. And, and instead of it becoming narrower and, and sort of being more focused, you might land up in a very different place. Um, in, in, the, in her own words, you might see First Amendment law completely upended from the last 70, 80 years. Mm. Because of that monitoring. Because of, yeah, because of that court case, those court cases. Um, so I, I guess to, 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 to maybe close, I've, I've, I've always been interested in this topic. Um, uh-huh. And af- after talking to you a couple times, you've, you've given me some direction in terms of what to look at. And it's a much, much, much more nuanced topic than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and um, I- I've just been fascinated by the work that's been done, to be honest, because it, it really seems like it's an issue of nuance. It's not oh, yeah. like it's not like this good versus bad, really high level you know, how can this happen either right. direction type of thing? Right. There's tons and tons of details. And once you look into it, it's just really great. I'm just wondering if somebody wants to learn more about this topic, what do you suggest barring, you know, going to law school? <laughs> um, well, uh, maybe start with the article I'm putting out soon. So hopefully once I get a chance, I'll, I'll send that to you and you might be able to put it out if the publisher allows that. Uh, that that'd be a good place to start. I think uh, listening to podcasts like yourself and and me might be a, an interesting place to start. Um, there there is there are a couple of books, and I mean I've written little book chapters and stuff as you might see yeah. behind me on those topics. Uh, they're a good place to start, but there's nothing simple and easy out there um, that that I wish I could point to and go. Here's a jump off summary. Um, 
but and and it all comes down to first of all, do you start with first do you start with uh, medical affairs or do you start with commercial sales? And you get very different answers, like we just mentioned today, because um, mm-hmm. the amount of controls from the federal government are different. Well, what what is something you're excited about, Darshan? In in this context? In any any context? Oh, um, I know you got to shoot. That's what I'm asking. I appreciate that. No, yeah. I I, th- I think the thing I'm most excited about honestly is getting a chance to talk to someone like you to me that is always my my funnest stuff I, i'm usually on the other side of this and i forget how difficult it is to be answering questions it's it's usually so much easier to be the one asking questions so i'm excited to be number one switch <laughs> roles uh but but the the second thing is i actually genuinely appreciate um talking to you because uh I, I will admit this i before we got on the call, I was just like, I'm just not mentally there today to talk about things. And compared to last time, I think today's conversation was a little bit more muddled in my own head because I'm dealing with a few different issues. But even then, I appreciate you giving me the forum and you allowing me to talk. And and that was sort of great for me and helped me feel a little bit better about things. So thank you. Yeah, it, it, it's really funny what uh, what conversation will do to you. And um, I, I've seen that too. You know, sometimes I'll record 6 a.m., yeah. If there's if there's a time difference and things like that, I'm like, man, this is so I'm so tired. How am I getting? I haven't talked to anybody, you know. My I yeah. still haven't, you know, felt the kick of caffeine yet, or you yeah. know, whatever. And once it gets going, I feel like you know, I've been running the whole day. You yeah. know, by 7 a.m., I just feel super energized. And yeah. Anyways, well, well, thank you, Darshan. Uh, we'll look out for your article. Uh Darshan Kulkarni, everybody. Thank you again, Sylvie. Thanks.